Uh, If you would, open with me in your Bibles. We're going to jump right into God's Word today. Acts chapter 24 is where we are. We've been spent, we've spent uh, all of last year going through the book of Acts, and we're going to continue on through it until we uh, finish it here, Acts chapter 28. But we are this morning in Acts chapter 24. And uh, just to bring you up to speed, the last couple of weeks, what's happening and what's transpiring right now is that Paul is traveling around and and he was ministering and the Lord had put it on his heart to, to raise an offering and to take it to the saints in Jerusalem that were suffering. Well, as Paul did that and he was there in Jerusalem worshiping the Lord, some people recognized him from a city of Ephesus. And when they saw Paul, they... They got mad, they got angry, they started a riot. And they tried to basically kill Paul with this angry mob. And so Paul narrowly escaped that, but he was arrested because he was the centerpiece of this whole riot and this mob. So he was arrested and these 40 men had taken a vow that they were going, not going to eat until they killed Paul. Well, when news of that came, Paul was transported from Jerusalem to Caesarea, awaiting trial by the governor there. And that's where we pick up the story today. We pick it up with Paul having arrived in Caesarea, and he is waiting there to give a defense as he's going to be put on trial. Paul, for the rest of the book of Acts, from from Acts chapter uh, 22 and on, Paul is, uh, he's not a free man. He, He is... a a man who is in prison. And even as we finish out the book of Acts, he is still on prison, in prison, and having to give a defense for himself. But we're going to read Acts 24 today. I'm going to read the whole chapter, and then we'll come back through, and there's some things I want to show you uh, that I believe is going to minister to you today. So Acts chapter 24. It says, after five days, again, Paul is waiting here in Caesarea. After five days, the high priest and Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman. The spokesman is a lawyer. He's a hired lawyer that they brought from Jerusalem to come and to uh, make an argument against Paul. His name, they tell us, is Tertullius. And they laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullius began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, except we we accept this with all gratitude. Uh, So this lawyer is, you know, he's trying to butter up the judge. He's trying to butter up Felix. And he says, but we don't want to detain you any further. I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly, for we have found this man to be a plague one who stirs up riots among all the Jews, who who throughout all the world is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Jesus was from Nazareth, and so they're calling uh, Christianity a sect of the Nazarenes, of those who follow Christ. And he even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. And by examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. Now, everything that they said here was a lie. Every single thing that they accused Paul of is a lie. Paul did not go around starting riots. Paul went around ministering, and people who opposed Paul started riots. Paul was not a plague. He was bringing the light of God, the truth of the gospel, He was not the ringleader of Christianity. He was one of of several apostles. And he did not try to profane the temple. 
He did not try, as they say uh, he did, to try and take a Gentile into the temple. He did not do that. So they go and, and they lay this case before the governor Felix, and everything they say against Paul is a lie. Verse 9 says the Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all of those things were so. So they got a group of witnesses who came to bear false witness and to lie against Paul. Verse 10 says, and when the governor had nodded to Paul to speak, Paul replied. He says, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. He's saying, I didn't have time to start a riot. I didn't have time to, to plan this huge mob that they say I, I did. I, it was only 12 days ago, and I've spent the last five days here in Caesarea. I didn't plan this whole thing. This isn't true. So he's saying, I've only been in Jerusalem for 12 days. He says, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which, we call, which they call a sect, according to Christianity, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Paul is saying, I, I don't know why they're against me. I believe in the Old Testament. I believe in the Old Testament scriptures, just like they do. I believe in the resurrection, just like they do, taught from the Old Testament scriptures. Verse 16, he says, I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you to make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found me when I stood there before the council. Other than this one thing, that I cried out, while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. So Paul goes through and he refutes every single one of the lies that this hotshot lawyer that had gotten from Jerusalem came and gave him. Paul himself has to defend himself. He doesn't have a lawyer. He doesn't have a legal team. He is just a brilliant mind. And point by point, he refutes everything that they have said. And so Felix, verse 22 it says that this governor, he has a, an acute knowledge of Christianity. And so he understands everything that's happening. And so he puts them off. He basically delays the trial, saying, when Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that Paul should be kept in custody, but have some freedom, some liberty, and that his friends should be able to come and attend to his needs. So Paul, he kept Paul in custody. He kept him in custody in the governor's mansion, but he gave him some freedom. However, he was not free to come and go as he pleased. He was still under arrest waiting another trial. And it says, after some days, Felix came with his wife, who was Jewish, and he sent from Paul, and they heard him speak about faith in Christ. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed. 
He was afraid. He was convicted. When Paul was sharing to him the gospel, Felix himself began to be filled with fear, to to be alarmed at at this gospel message that Paul was presenting to him. But instead of repenting and believing in Christ, he said, go away for the present. And when I have an opportunity, I will summon you. And at the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. Felix kept Paul around hoping that Paul's friends would bring him some money and that they would be able to bribe Paul out of jail. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded succeeded by Porcus, Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. For two years, Paul sits here waiting for his additional trial, and it never comes under Felix. Felix, wanting to do, it says, the Jews a favor. He he knows that Paul is innocent. He knows that he hasn't done anything deserving this treatment. But yet he leaves Paul in prison because there's these people who are angry against Paul, who are violently opposed to Paul. Now, as we read this story... Here again, we see Paul is in prison. Here again, we see Paul is making a defense for the gospel. But this, by far, is not the first time we've seen Christians persecuted or opposed in the book of Acts. And we kind of read it again. Oh, yeah, Paul's in prison again. Yawn. Uh, Okay, yeah. But but this this is a big deal to go to prison. I don't know if you've ever been to prison Thankfully, I haven't been to prison. I've known some people who have been to prison, and it's not a good thing. It's nothing that anyone aspires to. And Paul here is, he's just left to rot, basically, in prison because he's, this, this judge is a horrible judge. He's not a just judge. He is unjust in his justice. But what we've seen, and I I just want to remind you quickly of some of the things that we've seen in the book of Acts about how Christians have been opposed and how Christians have been persecuted. This isn't an unusual thing. In fact, as we've read through the book of Acts, what we've seen is actually Christians being persecuted is the norm. Almost on every page, literally every chapter. So let's just briefly walk through some of the things that we've seen. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are arrested. Well, what crime did they do? Well, they healed a lame man. That's what they did. And they said it's by the name of Jesus that this man has been made whole. They were arrested for healing this lame man, and they were warned not to speak or to teach in the name of Jesus. The next chapter, Acts chapter 5, not just Peter and John, but all of the apostles are arrested And they're charged with the greatest uh, uh, warning not to speak in the name of Jesus. Of course, Peter and the apostles, they gave this beautiful response, this famous response, where they said, we must obey God rather than men. Acts chapter 6, Stephen, one of the first deacons of the church, is seized by an angering mob and put on trial. Acts chapter 7 tells the story of Stephen uh, uh, on trial presenting the gospel to this angry mob. 
at which they get so angry they drag him outside the city walls and stone him to death. Acts chapter 8, Saul of Tarsus starts ravaging the church, going from house to house, arresting Christians, putting them on trial, and having them executed for their faith in Christ, ultimately putting them to death. Acts chapter 9, Saul of Tarsus is converted. He becomes the Apostle Paul. Immediately, Saul begins preaching the good news of Christ in the city of Damascus where he was saved. And just as quickly as he begins preaching, people begin to oppose him and make a plot to kill him. Paul has to be let down at night by a basket out over the wall of the city of Damascus because there's people waiting at the city gates to kill Paul. Acts chapter 12, the apostle James is arrested by King Herod and run through with a sword, again to score political points with the Jews in, Jer in Jerusalem. Also in Acts 12, Peter is arrested by King Herod because he saw how it pleased the Jews when he killed James. He decides he's going to kill Peter. And the night before Peter is killed, God sends an angel that miraculously rescues Peter from jail, narrowly escaping martyrdom. Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas are run out of Antioch by an angry mob. Acts chapter 14, in Iconium, where Paul is ministering, people plot to kill Paul. In Lystra, Jews come from Antioch and Iconium and stir up a riotous mob who attack and stone Paul, drag him out of the city, leave him on a garbage dump dead. Men of the, the, the city, the church, come and surround Paul and praise for him, pray for him. And he is miraculous raised, ra miraculously raised to life. Acts 16, Paul and Silas thrown into jail in Philippi. Acts 17, Paul and Silas run out of Thessalonica by a violent mob who chase them around the countryside from Berea down to Corinth, where Paul is again put on trial, Acts chapter 18. Acts 19, idol makers stir up a violent riot in Ephesus trying to kill Paul. Acts 20, another attempt made on Paul's life. Acts 21, Paul in Jerusalem, the mob stirs up, and then that's the mess that Paul is in now. Acts, again, Acts 23, 40 men take a vow, take an oath that they will not eat or drink until they kill Paul. I don't know if they starved to death or if they broke their vow. It had to be one of the two because Paul's been in jail for two years. I... I I don't know how long they went. See how they're persecuted? See how violently we've seen through the book of Acts? Why? What have they done? What have the apostles done? What have these missionaries done to deserve such treatment? What has been their crime? What have they done to have all of this violence pointed in their direction? Think about what Paul has done. Has he stolen something from anybody? No. Has he lied or cheated anyone? No. Has he slandered anyone? No. Has Paul stirred up these riots? No. The Christians, Paul, the, the missionaries, they have committed no crime. Yet time and time again, they are beaten. They are arrested. Attempts are made on their lives. Paul here is having to defend himself on trial in front of an unrighteous judge as a criminal. Why? Why? What have they done? All they have done is go and preach the gospel. 
That is all they have done. And yet in verse 5, the lawyer calls Paul a plague. He is a plague. Everywhere he goes, he is a plague. Why are they opposed so violently? Here's why. It's because those who oppose Paul are not part of the kingdom of God. You see, Paul and the apostles and all the Christians, they're part of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of light, the kingdom of the truth. And they go and they bring what? They bring the truth of God. They bring the gospel. They bring the light. But these that oppose Paul, they are dominated by not the light, but by the darkness. They're dominated by the darkness. Jesus says of the Pharisees that opposed him that were dominated by the same ideology, Acts cha- uh, John chapter 8. He says, you're not of your father Abraham. You're of your father the devil because you are opposing the truth. You are opposing the messenger that God has sent into the world. And we need to see and understand this. So even today, in the day and the climate in which we live, we need to see this clearly, that there is a war that rages between the light and the darkness. There is a battle that rages between those who believe the truth and those who believe the lie of Satan. This battle is not a new battle. It's been waging war. This battle has been raging since uh, Satan fell in heaven and he uh, tricked Adam and Eve and, and led them into sin in the garden. And as Paul and Barnabas and Paul and Silas and his missionary crew goes and James and John, as they go in and they preach the truth, they bring the light, they tell of Jesus, when people refuse to believe the truth, when people refuse to repent, when they harden their hearts and they choose not to believe the truth but to believe the lie, they are left with only one choice. And that is that instead of believing the truth, they choose to try to extinguish the light. They try to turn the light off. They try to cover it up. They try to to kill those who bring the light. They oppose it violently. And again, we see in the example of the Lord Jesus that this is what has happened. He, He came from heaven to earth. He brought the kingdom of heaven here. He brought the truth. He brought the light. But men loved darkness rather than the light. John chapter 3 tells us that. They didn't want to walk into the light because their deeds were evil. And so they hardened their hearts against the perfect man, the Son of God, who had, who had never sinned, the, the spotless Lamb of God. They hardened their hearts and they killed him. Again with Stephen, the same thing. They refused to believe the truth. They refused to walk out of their darkness into the light of the gospel. And so instead of, instead of re- receiving the truth, they decide to extinguish the light. And now they're trying to do the exact same thing with Paul. And what we need to understand as Christians today is that we live in a world that has rejected the truth of God and has embraced lies. That is the world that we live in. The United States of America founded on the truth. The United States of America founded on biblical godly principles. The United States of America that we live in today has had unprecedented access to the Word of God like never before. Never before has there been a nation with such easy access to the Word of God. The Bible, the number one sold book in all of history, 
The Bible everywhere. There's literally a Bible in every, almost every home in this country. You're, you have access to the Bible on your phone like crazy. Never before has there been a nation that has had such access to the Word of God, yet at the same time. Do we see our nation humbling ourselves under the Word of God? What do we see? In fact, we see the exact opposite. The nation that knows the Word of God rejecting the truth. And as we live in a world and a culture that increasingly rejects the truth of God, instead to believe the lies of Satan, what we need to understand is that the more we align ourselves with the truth, the more we will be rejected by the world. The more you and I decide we believe God's word, we believe the truth, we believe the light, the more the darkness will try to extinguish the light. And it's not just Christians in the book of Acts that suffered for their faith. As you read throughout all of history, that Christians, those who have remained faithful to Christ, those who have stood on the word of God, they have suffered horribly under those who have tried to extinguish the light. It's not just in history, it's today. Today there are Christians around the world who suffer only because they believe in Jesus Christ. There's not a week that goes by that I don't read some news story coming out of communist China where they're violently persecuting Christians where they're burning churches, where they're throwing pastors into jail. Today! We're not talking about 2,000 years ago. We're talking about right now, 2021. In India right now, there's this huge movement to persecute Christians. There's a new party, political party, that has come into power in India that is so anti-Christ and anti-Christian that Christians are being persecuted openly today in parts of India. I read this story about a, a, just this week, this happened just this week, a, a church that had gathered to worship God in a home because they, they, they were not able to gather in their church because of the persecution. And this violent mob descended upon this home as these precious believers gathered only to worship the Lord, only to take communion and, and to celebrate the Lord's Supper like we do here. This violent mob descends upon the home, begins to beat the people there. It's like the book of Acts. There was a young lady there who was there with her husband. They were expecting a child. They drug this woman out into the street and kicked her in the stomach repeatedly. When the violent mob finally left, they rushed her to the hospital, eight months pregnant, where she went into labor and gave birth to a stillborn baby. In the hospital, she received no treatment. No doctors attended to her. No nurses attended to her. They didn't give her any IV. They didn't give her any medication. They gave her not even a drink of water. Why? Simply because she's a Christian. Because she says, Jesus is my Lord. That's it. That is what is happening in the world today. It's not just 2,000 years ago. It's not just the book of Acts. 
It's on the pages of the New York Times. It's on the headlines of today. These are the things that are happening in the world. Because of the pandemic that's happening all over the world, people in so much need, people in lockdowns. I was reading again this week that Christians in these third world countries, Christians are suffering disproportionately under all of the, the oppressive lockdowns that are happening. Because when the governments come to give assistance, they are not giving it to the Christians. That the, the aid that comes to people in need is something like 10 to one for those who are not Christians versus those who are Christians. That's religious persecution. That's persecution for their faith in Jesus Christ. Have you thought about what you would do in that kind of a situation? Have you thought about what that would be like? What would you do? What would you do if, if there was an angry mob that descended upon your house and they said, recant of your faith in Christ or else? What would you do? Have you thought about that? Would you stand firm? Would you say, Jesus is my Lord? Jesus is my Savior. He has never once denied me. How could I possibly deny him? I know in our heart of hearts, we all pray that that's what we would do. And we say, oh, well, we live in America. That could never happen here. Where people love darkness, they will always oppose the light. I pray to God that it would never happen here, but we got to be ready. We have to be ready to stand for the truth. And here what we see Paul giving for us and the apostles and every believer from the book of Acts, they have given to every Christian that has suffered persecution throughout the ages. They have given us an example and they have given us hope. It's something to think about. What would we do if we were persecuted for Christ's sake? I pray that you would resolve in your heart today, I will stand for the truth. I will stand for the light. I will stand for Jesus Christ. Even if it costs me, I will stand for him. The second thing I want to, to draw your attention to is from verse 10, where Paul is put on trial and he's given an opportunity to speak and to make a defense. And Paul says this, he says, I cheerfully make my defense. This man, Paul, he, he's, I mean, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, and he is my ultimate hero, but Paul is right up there. What, what an example for us as Christians. Where Paul, think of the injustice that he is suffering. What crime has he committed? Not a single crime. Yet repeatedly he has been beaten, repeatedly he has been stoned, repeatedly attempts have been made on his life, repeatedly has been arrested, wrongfully thrown into jail. Now he's being shipped around the countryside as a prisoner. And when his, his, option, his, his opportunity comes to make his defense, he doesn't angrily make his defense. He doesn't have a chip on his shoulder. He doesn't, he's not annoyed at the whole situation. He says, I cheerfully make my defense. He sees this as a wonderful opportunity to present and to share the gospel. Everything he had been through, 
still he has his joy intact. He's lost friends, he's lost loved ones, he suffered the loss of his, his he's, he's in jail for two years, he can't evangelize, he can't do his work, he's lost everything except one thing, his faith in God and his joy. Cheerfully, he makes his defense. How is it that he who has lost so much can stand there with his joy. And I think, I think to my own life, I, I think to, to, to the people in our world and our culture, and I think how easily we lose our joy. How easily, the, the, the littlest things, the smallest things, and we have no joy, we have no happiness, we have no peace, because things didn't go our way. Our coworker sent us an angry email, and all of a sudden our world is turned upside down. Our wife gives us a, a weirdo comment, or we make the weirdo comment to her, and our joy is gone, and everything is out of whack, or our kids are this, or our kids are that, or things didn't go the, the way we wanted them in this situation or that situation, and our joy is gone. Not Paul. His joy is intact. How is it that he keeps his joy when he has suffered so much injustice? He gives us his answer in Philippians chapter 4. This is not only his answer, this should be our answer as well. This is the key, this is the secret to having joy even in the midst of horrible circumstances. Paul says, I'm not speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Here's the secret. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. This is the secret to joy. This is the secret to abounding. This is the secret to being content to having joy in the midst of every circumstance. It's because Christ is his source and his supply. You see, Paul was not looking to anyone else or anything else to fulfill him. Paul wasn't looking to his career or to his relationships or to his circumstances or, his, or to his finances or to his possession. He wasn't looking to the government as his source of joy. Paul looked to Christ, and he learned that I can do all things in every situation, whether I have a lot or I have a little, whether people love me or people hate me, Christ is the one who gives me strength. He looked to Christ. He looked to Jesus. And he lived his life for the glory of God and not his own glory. He lived his life to bring glory to Christ, to exalt Christ, that only Christ would be magnified and Christ would be exalted and the name of Jesus would be lifted high. That's all he lived for. And so it didn't matter what else happened around him as long as he had an opportunity to shine the light, to speak the truth, he had joy. Galatians 1.10, Paul says this, he says, 
Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul was living not for man's approval, not to please other people. He was living for the glory of God. He was living to please Christ. And you and I, believer, Christian, that should be our aim as well. That we would use our lives, that we would expend our lives to bring Christ glory. Not just in a in, in a sort of a, a, a big idea kind of way, but, but each and every day in every tiny little way, in every situation, in every circumstance, to ask ourselves this question, what would, what would I do right now to bring Christ the most glory? What, what decision should I make right now with how I spend my time to bring the most glory to Christ? When my coworker comes against me or the crazy email that they sent me, I pause and I think, How can I bring Christ's glory in this moment? How can I exalt Christ? How can I use this as Paul did in every situation that he had to share the gospel, to shine the light of Jesus? You see, Paul's joy was not based on all of these temporary things. Paul's joy was based on Christ, something that does not change. Because all of these temporary things, they come and they go. Sometimes things go our way, sometimes they don't. And if our joy is based on what is temporary, when those temporary things are taken away, our joy goes with it. But when our joy is based on what is eternal, when our joy is based on knowing Christ, that can never be taken away. Because Christ can never be taken away from us. So they may come and they may take our stuff, They may even take our lives, but they will never steal our joy because He is our source and our supply. He is our joy, knowing Christ. Find satisfaction, find hope, find fulfillment in Christ and in bringing Him glory, and you will live the most joy-filled, hopeful life even in the midst of horrible circumstances. Live for the glory of God. In closing, one more thing I want to draw your attention to is this Governor Felix. This Governor Felix, and Felix ends up being what I would call a tragedy of tragedies. For two years, he wrongfully imprisoned Paul unjustly. And for two years, he summoned Paul to come and speak to him. He was hoping to get a bribe out of Paul. And for two years, Paul came and ministered to Felix. Look look at what it said he talked to him about in verse 24. Faith in Jesus Christ. He reasoned with him about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment of God. And Felix would become alarmed by this and he would become convicted and he would send Paul away until his conscience, you know, would, would leave him alone and he would think, you know what, uh, maybe Paul will give me a bribe this time and he would send for Paul again and Paul would come and again he would talk to him about what? Faith in Christ. 
the righteousness of God, the self-control that, that we are to have. And, and, and though we haven't had it, what is coming now is we have chosen to sin against God instead of, uh, of, of, of blessing, God is bringing wrath and judgment upon the world. And the only way to escape it is faith in Jesus. And he would send Paul away. He would become alarmed again. This unjust judge, this unrighteous man. Tragedy of tragedies. Here he has before him the greatest preacher the world has ever known. The greatest theologian the world has ever known. The greatest evangelist the world has ever known. And for two years he hears the gospel and he doesn't repent. He doesn't receive Christ. He doesn't turn to faith. Tragedy of tragedies. He went away an unbeliever. He himself hardened his heart. And so that brings us to ourselves. What about you? Where are you at today? What is the state of your soul? Have you believed in Christ? Have you believed in the Word of God? Have you believed in the truth? Have you believed in the light? Have you been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Jesus Christ our Lord? Have you repented of sin and put your faith in God? What about you? Or are you still part of this system, this kingdom, this world that is fading away? Only you know where you stand before God. Only you know if you have believed the truth. It's not enough to just know it. You must believe it. You must embrace Christ. It says that Felix was rather acute. He had a lot of knowledge about Christianity. He knew all about it. Yet he didn't believe. Don't make that same mistake. Don't follow that same path. Believe upon Jesus Christ. The Bible says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul talking to Felix about the judgment that is coming. One day we will all stand before God. And can you, like the Apostle Paul said earlier, can you say that you have a clear conscience before God? Not that we are perfect, not that we trust in our own righteousness, but that because of the righteousness of Christ, I have believed upon him. I've believed on his work on my behalf. I have a clear conscience before God. I know that when that day comes, I will hear the words, good and faithful servant. Do you know that? Can you say that with confidence today? I pray that you can. And if, if you can't say that today, Call out to Christ. He will never turn anyone away. It doesn't matter what you've done in the past. He paid the price for all of your sin on the cross. He died, shed his blood so that you could be forgiven. He will not cast out anyone. You say, well, I failed time and time again. Listen, we all have. But he turns no one away. Believe upon Christ. I don't know what the future holds 
for us, but we know that Christ is with us, that he has given us his power, that he has given his, us his spirit, and that he holds us in his hand. And though we today live in a nation that still has religious freedom, where we still have religious liberty, where we can still gather and proclaim that Jesus is Lord without the threat of persecution, we need to remember that we have brothers and sisters all over this world that right now are suffering. We need to remember and we need to pray for them. We need to remember and, and, and lift them up and intercede for them. And what we need to pray for them is that their faith would remain strong, that they would pass the test, and that God would give them his strength as they endure their trial. And as we do, we need to remember that we don't place our joy in temporary things, but we place our joy in the eternal hope that we have in Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you uh, that you speak to us and that you show us how to live. Lord, I thank you for the great examples of faith that we have in the apostles, in the way that they lived. And Lord, for those who have paved the way, Lord, throughout all of church history, those who have lived faithfully for you. Lord, right now we lift up those who are suffering in, in foreign countries, in foreign lands. Lord, those who are paying a great price to remain faithful to you. Lord, I pray that you would surround them with your peace, that you would fill them with your joy, even in the midst of hardship and trial and persecution. Lord, that you would give them strength to endure and that they would be faithful in their witness to you and that they would shine the light into the darkness. And we know, John chapter 1, verse 5, that the darkness will not overcome the light. Lord, that your light would continue to go forth, that your light would shine in this nation. Lord, that you would wake up your people to the truth, to the light, to your word. Lord, that we would be people who would stand firm on the word of God and not buckle under the weight of, of cultural uh, pressures. But Lord, that your people would arise and shine the light and speak the truth. We thank you for giving us the strength to do it. It's only by your grace and your mercy. And Lord, that we would live not for our own glory, but for the glory of God alone. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. God bless you.